to see uh, some folks here. See our crowd a little bigger tonight and more people come. So obviously some of you folks took Brother Paul's challenge last night and uh, maybe maybe you didn't. Maybe some folks just showed up tonight. We're, we're glad and I'm grateful that you came and uh, maybe some folks thought somebody else was going to be preaching. That's why they're here tonight. I don't know. But um, I'm glad you showed up. It's a blessing for me to be here and uh, made good friends here. And we always excited to come. It's good Brother Rod brings me, and he loves to come. And uh, Jennifer usually gets to come with us, but she's been traveling this week with her job, and she hadn't been able to come. So I'm sure she would get, wish you a, a hello as well. So uh, they love to come up and see you, made good friends with you too. So tonight, I want to uh, preach a little bit different message. I hadn't preached this message in quite some time and preached on this text in quite some time. And I want you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter number 8. The Gospel of Luke chapter number 8. And I want to talk to you on a message tonight that um, probably uh, is avoided sometimes simply because of the content of it. And I certainly do not want to say anything offensive tonight, but it's in the Bible and we need to deal with it and it is something that we can learn a great deal about as far as compassion and mercy and sympathy and empathy and we see that and, and grace even in a woman's life in, Matt, in Luke chapter number 8 and verse number 40 is where we'll start at, Luke chapter 8 and verse number 40. Um, and I hope that you'll stay with me tonight as I talk about this subject. Um, and I'm really hoping that God will help somebody tonight. Um, the touch that transforms. That's what I want to talk to you about. The touch that transforms. And there's not, there's about ten different commendations God, that the Lord Jesus gives during His ministry. We find people He commended for something they did. Uh, we, we find several of those mentioned in the scripture where he commended them and said, you know, I've not found so great a faith. You remember it? He, he, he commended that. He commended that centurion. He commended uh, the Syrophoenician woman on the fact that she was willing to take the crumbs that fell from the table. He commended her for that. The widow that gave, uh, the, gave all her living and the two mites, he commended her. This is one of those women in the Bible that God commended. And in her story tonight, you may find your story. You may find a story you haven't even told yet. You may find a story that's in your life and in your soul, somewhere buried deep within you that you've experienced. And uh, maybe tonight God will help some of us with this message. So look in Luke chapter 8, verse number 40. And listen to what the scripture says. It came to pass that when Jesus was returned, the people gladly received him, for they were all waiting for him. Now that's what the Lord Jesus likes when they gladly receive him. He just left a crowd that wanted him to leave. You remember when he cast the demons out, they went in the pig, and they begged him to leave their country because he put them out of the pig business. <laughs> the folks that live like pigs don't want you to put them out of the pig business. Jesus put them out of the hog business. They said, get out of our country. So he leaves the other side, and on the other side he gets a far different reception. They're crowded by the thousands there to hear him waiting on the Lord Jesus. And the scripture said, And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was the ruler of synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. 
So here's a man that stands out in the crowd. He quickly comes. One that you don't expect to be there. One that should not be there. That's two. We find two people in the story that should not be there. You normally would not see. The ruler of the synagogue would never want to be seen, identified with Jesus being the Messiah. But here he is. He shows up. You know, I'll tell you why later on. And besought that he would come to his house. Here's the reason for he had one daughter about to 12 years of age. And she lay a dying. It's amazing what people do when somebody that loves a dying, isn't it? We'll change our attitude. But as he went, the people thronged him. And a woman having an issue of blood, 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any. She came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood staunched or stopped and Jesus said who touched me when they were all denied Peter and they that were with him said master the multitude thronged thee and pressed thee and sayest thou who touched me and Jesus said somebody had touched me now get this for I perceive that virtue hath gone out of me that word virtue means power strength has gone out of me into somebody else. And the scripture says, when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling, falling down before him, and she declared to him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how he had healed, she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith have made thee whole. Go in peace. So I want to talk to you tonight for a while on the touch that transforms. The touch that transforms. Let's pray and ask God to help us on this last night of your revival effort to just all not only touch Him, but let Him touch us tonight. Amen. Father, speak to us now from Your Word. I thank You for this wonderful truth tonight. I thank You that You care for us. I thank you, God, that you always have cared for us. I thank you, God, that you won't let us down. You never have. And I, I pray some night some people might be set free or find some liberty tonight that they've not known, find some peace that they've not experienced, or maybe they can go back and look at some times in their life where you saw them through a time that they thought would never end. And I pray, God, tonight we might See, you set somebody else tonight with a liberty in their spirit and in their soul about where they stand before God. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, when we look at Luke's gospel, we've already seen some things in Jesus' life. It's been quite amazing. We've seen him have power over death. We've seen him resurrect somebody. And we've seen him have power over over the deep, we've seen him be able to handle the elements of nature by just telling the seas to stop, quit rolling, be still. And they stopped. He controlled nature. He had power over all the elements. We've seen him in the supernatural because he had power over the demons. If he told the demon to shut up and come out, the demon shut up and come out. He had power over death. He had power over the deep. He had power over demons. And tonight, I want you to notice this is something he has power over, disease. He has power over disease. When I say disease, physical sickness here, God has power over. 
Now, even though he's teaching us more than about physical sickness, he's teaching us about spiritual sickness tonight. But I want you to know he does it through the realm of physical sickness. If Jesus can heal physically, he certainly can forgive us spiritually, can he? In fact, in Mark chapter number 1, or Mark chapter number 2, remember they let the men down before Jesus and people said, who can forgive sins but God only? And who has power on earth to forgive sins but God? And Jesus said, you don't believe this? You don't believe I can forgive his sins? Let me just show you. Rise and walk. Now do you believe it? I did it inside. You couldn't see it. I'll do it outside where you can. And so tonight I know he can do it inside because he's done it outside. And this is what he's showing us here tonight. He can take care of us spiritually because he can take care of us physically. Now, Jesus is on his way to heal somebody else. Think about this. Jairus has met him. He's a, kind of a big wig in the synagogue. He's, he's the big dude. He's the, one of the head dudes. He's the, the guy that normally would be critical of the Lord Jesus in most cases. But now he's desperate. His daughter's dying. He starts to see things different. He shows up ahead of everybody and begs Jesus to come to his house. So he's on the way to Jairus' house with this sickly woman of faith shows up and touches the hem of his garment. Now, I would call this a parenthesis miracle because it comes in between the miracle of the healing of a demoniac and the miracle of the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. So right in between, on his way to do another miracle, he stops and performs a parenthesis miracle. In fact, when you think about every miracle Jesus performed was a parenthesis miracle because he came to this earth to go to the cross. And all the way on his way to the cross throughout his life, he stopped along the way and did miracle after miracle after miracle. Aren't you glad he did that? So tonight, in sense, this is a miraculous thing as he comes and parenthetical just kind of just stops and heals a woman dead in his tracks right there in the midst of a whole multitude where everybody could see. So as he made his way through the world, he did that on quite a few occasions. I'm glad one day he stopped at my house, aren't you? I'm glad he stopped at your house one day. I'm glad he stopped at your life and did a miracle, and that's what's happened here. Now, can I say something tonight without getting in too much trouble? I, I normally don't mind getting in trouble, so if I do, I do. But I just want to tell you tonight, this is a woman's story. The women tonight ought to be saying amen with me all night long. You men, you, 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 you don't have any sympathy about you. you know, you're not sensitive like a woman. I called, when I pastored, I called the men buffaloes and the women butterflies. Men's a big buffalo. They just, they'll step on flowers where the butterflies land on them and smell them. That's the difference. And so you don't sometimes understand the needs and the sensitivity of a woman. And this is a story. I don't know that I've ever read a woman's book. I don't know that I've ever read that a woman has ever written on this story a book. Why did somebody not pick this woman, one of the most miserable human beings we find in all the Bible of the New Testament, Except a leper, she was in the worst shape you could be in except for a leper. And nobody writes about her and nobody talks about the hurt that was in her life. Men are not normally going to camp on this particular thing because men kind of has the bumper sticker on their truck that says the more I know about women, the more I love my truck. That's about the way a man thinks. They don't really have too much sensitivity when it comes 
to women. And, and, and in fact, you know what the definition of a bachelor is? Anybody know what the definition of a bachelor is? A uh, definition of a bachelor is, is a man who missed the opportunity to make some woman miserable. That's what a bachelor is. I just want you to know that. That's what, what, what men do. We just kind of mess up the world. Somebody said, well, she made a fool out of him. Listen, she didn't make a fool out of him. Men make a fool out of ourselves already. We do that all by ourselves. We don't need nobody to help us along. We can do it all by ourselves. And so here, sometimes a man might read this story and not see the sensitivity of it. But a woman, when they read it, understands what a powerful, wonderful miracle happened right here. Most of us as men are clumsy at sympathizing with women. Let's just be honest. Uh, Someone said, you know why men die before women do? They want to. That's why they do that. Because they're more concerned about themselves. I mean, you you don't believe it. Let me ask you this. When, when, a, when your wife gets sick or when a lady gets sick, say it's your wife, she gets sick. I mean, she can hardly go. She's just sicker than the dog and she tells you she's sick. She don't feel good. She's laying there. She's got 104 fever. I mean, she's just throwing up. And she, she said, he said, well, honey, I'm sorry you're sick, but don't you feel like making breakfast this morning? That's how a man thinks. But yet when you get sick, you can get a tooth pulled and you think you just had an appendectomy happen to you are about ready to go to a colonoscopy because you go crazy. You're sick. You play it for everything it's worth. You lay on the couch three days and ask her to bring you water and tea and moon pies and you don't care. But when she's sick, can't you cook breakfast today? What's wrong with you, woman? Get up. We're just like that. But when we read this story, if it don't touch you tonight, I don't know what can. Because Jesus was not like that. Jesus was sensitive to women. Jesus understood them. He understood their needs. He cared about them. And he made it very clear in this story that he was going to do for this woman what nobody else could do. So I hope you'll stay with me tonight. Can I tell you that every one of us has messed it? We we live in a messed up world. But can I tell you most of us are messed up? Most of us have our problems, our issues. We don't like to talk about them. We don't even like to admit it sometimes. Sometimes we're ashamed to talk about it. Sometimes we're ashamed to admit it. But most of us have our problems. We have a pile of baggage in our life. We have issues we can't deal with. We have hurts that we can't get healed. We have sins that we can't get over. The guilt sometimes haunts us and there's things in our life. And I begin to think of this three things come to my mind. You know that we're told that just about 15, 20 years ago, the statistic was that one out of every four Americans had some form of insanity. One out of every four. So you look around and the three around you looks okay, then you're the one, all right? That's how you know. But the truth of the matter is, did you know that number now has doubled? You know, half of Americans has some kind of mental issues today. Half. One out of every two people you meet, we would define sometimes if we knew what was going on in their life as crazy, as nuts, as weird, as having problems. Now, now, they may not be nuts, and they may not be weird. 
but they have hurts and needs in their life. And I begin to think, what is wrong with our world? Why are we so mentally messed up? Why do we have so many mental health issues? And I think I can boil it down to three things that happen. First of all, there's inspiration. There is an inspiration. There is an absence of instruction in our world. In other words, we took our manual of how to live for God. We took our manual how to live at all, which is the Bible, away from people. And we think we can live without the Word of God. And as a result, it's like trying to put together a complicated toy on Christmas Eve without reading the instructions. That's how we're living our life. We're trying to put a complicated life together in a messed up world without going to the book that's the manual on it. And so as a result, it drove us to the point of issues that we can't deal with. It's driven us to make all kinds of weird ideas and weird concepts and weird philosophies that's driving us crazy because we did it without the instruction manual. Secondly, when you go without inspiration, and when I say inspiration, I'm talking about the inspiration of God, the breath of God, the Word of God, then it brings confusion. Because when you try to spend your life around, you're trying to put together a life without a manual to do it by, without any guide to do it by, without any substance to show you how it's done, all it does is bring confusion. So as a result, where does it confuse us? Right here. We're confused mentally in our world. Spiritually, morally, educationally, just in our daily life, we're messed up because we've tried to live our lives without the Word of God. We had no manual to go by, no book to teach us how. We've discarded that book. We don't want it in our schools anymore. We don't want it in our country anymore. We don't want it in, we don't want it in the public square anymore. We don't even want it in our churches anymore. So as a result, our people's got nothing to live by except a world philosophy which has always failed. So what does it do? It brings confusion. Who's the author of confusion? Not God. The Bible clearly says God's not the author of confusion. So who it is? It's Satan, right? He's the author of confusion. So who attacks us the most in our mind? It's Satan. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 and 4 tells us we better be careful because Satan will attack our mind. That's where he comes out. That's why we have so many mental health problems in America. Because we tried to live our life without the instruction book, as a result, we wound up in the confusion book. And so everything we have, and I take this respectfully, but I can biblically show it, we have a moronic view of life. We're morons. So why do you use it? Because in Romans chapter 1 says that they thought themselves to be wise and they became fools. You know what the word fools means? Moron. Blockhead. That's what it means. So we're living with a moronic, moronic value system, a moronic worldview. Someone says, I do not see how things is happening in America like it is. It's easy. We left the instruction manual a long time ago, so now we're confused. We're confused. That's why our kids are confused. They're hurting. They're troubled. They're even insane. They're misguided. They're angry. They're resentful. They know what peace means. And so it brings confusion. So that brings us to the third thing. You can reduce it all down to these three things. Frustration. We live a total frustrated life when we leave off the instruction manual, become confused about life, try to figure it out our way instead of God's way, and it, all it does is frustrate us and leave us without no hope. Here's a woman 
who had come to the place to where nothing made sense in her life anymore. We become a nation of basket cases today because of those three things. This probably wasn't the case of this woman. This woman had some reasons for being emotionally distraught. This reason, this, this woman, listen, if you have, if you can't be moved by her tonight, you think you've got troubles, you think you've got problems, listen to this woman tonight. And you're going to go out here saying, glory to God for my life. Because this woman had problems. And we've got a world full of hopeless, hapless, ready to cave in people who don't know what to do next because of that. So let's look at three things. First of all, I want you to notice the thronging of the crowd in verse 42. Uh, Jesus had been unwelcome in Gadara, so he returned where he's welcome. So he, when he gets there, he don't have a scattered crowd. He has a thronging crowd. The word thronging means to press really hard. and It actually means to throw a hook and pull you tight around. I mean, they were so tightly pressing against Jesus Christ that they were just thronging him. They were all around him. They were swarming him. He was trying to move through a crowd of people that was pushing and shoving and bumping and just trying to get close enough to get a glimpse of Jesus as he walked by. All kinds, multitudes of people thronging him. And so that's what we have. And so Jairus was waiting there too in that crowd. Jesus picked him out. Have you, have you ever noticed that there Jairus was among all that huge crowd, but somehow Jesus picked him out because he knew he had a need and Jairus had faith for him to meet that need and God saw him. Can I tell you, in the multitudes of this world, God still has time to stop for you. Just you. He has time for you. And he stops here for Jairus. And then as they head on out to Jairus' house, along the way, here comes a woman. Now, think about this year. Here's a 12-year-old girl who had brought this man 12 years of joy in his life. He don't have any other children. She's it. I mean, he loves her with all his heart. She has brought him nothing but 12 years of joy and now she's about to die. But on the way to heal her, he runs into another woman who stops him in his tracks and she hadn't had 12 years of joy. She's had 12 years of misery. So what does Jesus do? He stops on his way to restore joy back to a family that was about to lose 12 years of joy and he stops to give joy to a woman who never had anything but misery. I think it's interesting today that we get our priorities mixed up sometimes, don't we? On our way to appease someone else, we stop to, we forget to stop and help those who have the most need. In other words, there's many people who throng Jesus, but there's only two who touched him. Think about it. All this multitude strong in him, and that he hears two touches really touches him with faith just too I don't think it's changed too much today I think it's still like that not many in the crowd really touched Jesus oh, oh they could he's present oh they touch the church they make it to the church house they may even pick up a bible every now and then uh, uh, they sing a few hymns and, and, and they give their offering they, 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 they go for the throng and they're pushing and they're shoving and they're getting all around Jesus but very few people really touch Jesus and here was one here was two people out of a crowd 
that was pushing and shoving and moving everybody around who really touched Jesus. You say, well, how do you know he touched him? Because Jesus stopped and recognized them. Because when you really touch Jesus, you also get something from Jesus. Remember what Jesus said? Whoop, whoop, boys, somebody touch me. Oh, Jesus, how can you know some? everybody's touching you? No, somebody really touched me. How do you know? Virtue has gone out of me. Somebody in faith believed me enough to touch me. And because of that, my power has gone into their life. Remember that day that you finally got up enough faith you finally meant business enough with God that you reached out in faith to touch him. And when you did, you found out he was already reaching to you. That's what happens here. He touched him. It's the crowd that throngs him. But it's the ones that touch him that counts. This weekend here, you've had revival this weekend. And this Sunday, you'll gather again. And next Sunday you'll gather again and weekend after weekend we gather and conference after conference we gather and revival after revival and retreat after retreat and, and Bible study after Bible study and we gather around and we throng him and we throng him and we throng him. But how many of us really touch him? So there's the thronging crowd. Secondly, there's the touching condition. Now, folks, I want you to hear me well about this. I, I, I don't want you to think I'm trying to be, um, say anything tonight that would be offensive. But what's happening in this woman's life is not offensive. It's absolutely misery. And I want you to see what's happening in her life is totally biblical, and God explains it to us. And that's why it's so important we get it rather than just pass it up and let it go. Because we miss something here when we do. In the midst of that crowd, here's a woman that's waiting for Jesus. She don't want his autograph. She don't want a picture. She don't want him to pose. She don't care about any of that. She don't want to go away and say, well, I just want you to know I saw Jesus today. No, that's not what she's wanting. She wants to touch him. She's waiting to touch him. She believes something. Why? Because look what it said. She has a disease. Now this disease is a disgraceful disease. This is not an honorable disease. Today, we don't look at things quite the same way. But in that day, it was a disgraceful, humiliating disease that this poor lady had in her life. And it was called in the Bible an issue of blood. Now, you women know exactly what that means in the Bible. Some of you men, you're probably slow. You don't get it. But ask your wife when you get home. She had an issue of blood. She had a female problem that was incurable, absolutely incurable, almost like leprosy. Leprosy couldn't be cured. There had never been a leper cured unless Jesus done it. And there had never been a woman with an issue of blood to the extent she had it that had been cured. Couldn't be cured. Doctors knew not what to do. She's got that kind of a problem. It's an embarrassing problem. It's a humiliating problem. And in that day, it was an isolating problem that she had. It made her life miserable for 12 years. You think about it, 12 years. It's a wonder she's still alive. 12 years of hemorrhaging. 12 years she's got that issue of blood. You, say, what? you see, they didn't have modern hygiene 
like we do today. They didn't have, have all the medical equipment. They didn't have any doctors to do uh, hysterectomies and they didn't have any doctors to tr- cure tumors and they had no doctors to deal with any of those issues and they had no way to take care of a woman like that. They had weird kind of things like carrying the dust, the ashes of a, of a donkey uh, in, in their bags and stuff like that, just kind of crazy stuff to try. She tried it all, but none of it worked because they didn't have anything that would cure this problem. It was physically miserable for her. The, the word, when I say that, I meant that she was in pain. She also, it made her very weak. When you're losing, constantly losing blood, she was constantly in weakness. It's amazing she lived this long. But here's the folks, here's what we miss. Not only was she physically miserable, she was socially miserable. She couldn't have friends like you do. She had nobody that could talk to. She had nobody that understood. She had nobody that cared because she was unclean. You see, if you go back in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, the old preacher called it Leviticus, so if you can't say it good, it's Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 15, I just want to read to you just a little bit. I won't read it all to you, but it says this, the woman also with whom man shall be with, seed of copulation, there shall both bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. And if a woman have an issue, and her issue in her flesh be of blood, she shall be put apart seven days. And whosoever toucheth her shall be unclean until the even. In other words, one week out of a month, any woman would be unable to be participate in social issues or spiritual issues or any kind of issue. They were isolated for a week. If they had an issue of blood that continued and continued and continued, that same restriction applied to them. It never stopped. And let me go on. And everything that she lieth upon in her separation shall be unclean. Everything she sitteth upon shall be unclean. And whosoever she toucheth her bed, she shall wash her clothes, bathe herself in water, and be unclean until the even. And whosoever toucheth anything that she set upon shall wash his clothes, bathe them, be unclean. And then it goes on, if any man lie with her at all, her flowers be upon him, she'll be unclean seven days, and the bed whereupon he lies shall be unclean. And if a woman have an issue of blood many days, out of the time of her separation, or if a run beyond the time of her separation, all the days of issue of her blood, she's unclean, shall be as the days of separation, as unclean. Every bed she lies on, every chair she sits on, he goes on to explain all of those things that happens to her. And again, he, he goes in chapter number 18, and he says, Also thou shalt not approach unto a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is put apart for uncleanness. Think about this. Twelve years... She couldn't sit on your furniture. Twelve years. You couldn't touch her. Twelve years. Twelve years. She was socially misfit. Twelve years. She go to nobody's house. Twelve years. She couldn't go to temple. She couldn't go to synagogue. Twelve years. She was set apart. All by herself. Because of a disease. She had. A sickness. A plague, which the word plague in this particular case means something that causes you to be very weak. And that's what she had. 
I don't know about you, but when I read about this woman, I can't help but have empathy and sympathy and pity for this woman. Couldn't even sit in a chair without contaminating. Imagine what people said about her. In fact, she'd have been glad probably somebody to say something about her, but no one would say anything to her. They'd stayed away from her because if they touched her, they had to stay they had to go and wash and cleanse because they, they would have been unclean themselves. But not only was she physically and spirit or socially miserable, but she was spirit, spiritual. I mean, think about it. She's spiritually miserable. She, she couldn't go to Sunday school. She, she couldn't have a ladies' group. She, she, couldn't have any, she couldn't have any of the church ministry, the fellowship. Wasn't a church in that day, but she couldn't have any of the Jewish fellowship. She couldn't have any ladies get-togethers. She couldn't sit down and sew with them. She couldn't sit down and grind with them. She couldn't sit down and talk with them. She couldn't do anything. She was spiritually alienated. Twelve years. Twelve years. No doubt, she was, had to be a younger woman at twelve years with what she had going on. And she became outcast. She became lonely. I don't know about you, but it seems to me like she's almost suicidal because this seems to be her last chance. If Jesus cannot do it, she has no other hope. There's nothing left for her to do. It's her last shot. So she's probably suicidal in her thinking to a certain degree. She's embarrassed. She's alone. She may have went on eHarmony, but there was nobody going to check her profile. Once they did, no help. Probably if she was married, it meant a divorce for 12 years. Her husband couldn't touch her. Probably meant he left her. 12 years is a long time to be humiliated, embarrassed, shunned, alone, never had a tender touch, never had a soft kiss, never had a big hug. Never spent time with anybody of her friends from down at the local Bible Believers Fellowship. No. You see, you said, boy, that's a bad situation. It is. But let me tell you why God put this in the Bible. Remember, he put it in the Old Testament law because the Old Testament law has types and symbols. Everything about it and figures, everything about the Old Testament is to lead us to Jesus Christ. So he puts this here to describe what sin will do to you. Sin will alienate you. Sin will humiliate you. Sin will embarrass you. Sin will set you by yourself. And I don't care if it's a crowd all around in your heart, you're lonely. You have nobody. It will push you aside. It will step on you. It will forget you. Sin will leave you all by yourself miserable in your life. And God puts this here and describes sin. One of the words that's used for sin in the Old Testament is like a disease. David uses it in Psalm 51. One of the words he uses means to beat out the sin, the disease that's in my life. That's how he describes it. So folks, before you got saved, before you come to Jesus Christ, this is what you were. You were just like, as far as God's concerned, you, this is the way you were. This is the way he saw you, unclean. Unclean. 
But when one day you wanted to reach out to Jesus, you found out he's already reaching out to you. And when you touched him, the power of God came into you and changed your life and brought you into fellowship with the one who loves you. And you became a part of the family of God. In fact, Jesus later on calls this woman a daughter. A daughter. It's the second time it's used in the Bible. Only two times it's used in the Bible. And he uses the word daughter. He calls her the same thing you would call a man that got saved as a son. He uses this as a daughter. He said, now you've been away from the family of God. You had not been a part of it. But thank God because you touched me and I touched you. You now are a daughter of God. And you're in the family. You're in the family. So remember, when you get some new believer in Jesus Christ, they were, they were just like that. They were apart. They were lonely. They were without hope. Had nowhere to go. Down to their last point. And sometimes God will put us to that place. Sometimes God brings us to the place where there's nowhere else to go. Some of you got people right now, so I just don't understand why they won't come to Christ. I'm praying for my son. I'm praying for my daughter. I'm praying for my uncle. I'm praying for my cousin. I'm praying for my neighbor. And it just don't seem like I'm getting anywhere. Won't you try this? Won't you pray? God, bring them to the place that they have nowhere else to turn but you. That's when we come to Jesus. And here this woman had a disease, but she also was destitute. She was broke. Look, the scripture said she spent all her living. She didn't have a dime left. Everything she had had. Perhaps she was a widow. We don't know. We don't know, but she at least had some money. And every month, whatever money she had, she had spent every dime she could scrape up on getting well. Something to heal her. Something to put her back in society. Something where she could worship again and love and have some fellowship again. Just anything. And she'd spent every dime she had. She'd been to every doctor, every healer, every pill pusher, every herb dispenser. She'd been to every potion peddler, credible or non Incredible, she'd been there. I'm sure she took CBD gummies. She tried it all. Nothing worked. Medical bills ruined her. How many of you understand that? There was no Medicare. There was no health care. Widows were the worst treated people in the whole world if she was a widow, but she was the same as a widow. So she was treated just like anyone else. There was nothing for her and nobody to help her. So now medical bills had absolutely robbed her of her living. She now not only was had this disease to where she couldn't even work and make any money, but now she was destitute. She had nothing left. You know why God put that in there? Because you remember when he talked about the prodigal son, the Bible said when he got in the pig pen and when he had spent all, That's what sin does. Sin causes you to spend it all up. Spend all your life up. All your love up. You spend it all up. You waste your life with riotous living. And you wind up with nothing but the Father's house left to go. Sin will cost you a lot. The pleasures of sin are not cheap. It will leave you destitute. But look at the third thing. She was desperate. Without whether could be healed of my disease. Luke admits the healthcare industry had failed to do anything. I know she'd got second opinions. She probably got 20 second opinions, and none of it worked. She'd been to every clinic, every lab, every health facility. Nothing would help her. She was now totally desperate. And so here the crowds are facing Jesus, and here she comes trying to make her way to Jesus. 
And like an ambulance in the midst of traffic. Have you noticed ambulances when they're going through traffic and gets real busy and they're barely moving, they're beeping here and they're beeping there for you to get out of the way and you move. And so here all of a sudden, like Jesus is moving through this crowd, emergency situation, on his way to Jairus' house to heal him. He's moving and waving his way through the crowd and all of a sudden in the midst of that, he stops like an ambulance in traffic and she touches him. You see, Jesus uh, wants us to understand that touching Jesus is going to take everything you have left. You have to give him. You remember the rich, rich boy that come to Jesus? What do I got to do? Jesus said, go sell everything you had. Oh, I've done it. Oh, I've done everything. Kept all the commandments, done every one of them. Yep, yep, yeah, you have, but let's go sell all you got. There's one he hadn't. He loved money over God. He walked away. When you're willing to lay everything down at the feet of Jesus is when you'll touch him. And here in the middle of a thousand arms are waving and pushing and shoving and bumping him. One woman down on the ground crawling. Not even being able to stand up high enough. See, she wasn't supposed to be there. Uh-uh. Had she been caught. She was risking her life to be there. Had she been caught, she'd been burned or stoned or put somewhere for the rest of her life and starved to death. She would have never, ever had any life after that. She risked everything so she could get to Jesus. And folks, when you come to the point to where you're willing to turn everything you have loose, where there's nothing else that matters except being right with God, when you get to that point, you'll touch Jesus. And he'll touch you. And that's what happened here. So no one touches Jesus without desperation. You know why some of our prayer lives don't work? Because we don't pray in desperation. We don't pray long enough. We stop. We quit. Jesus even tells us that. He, he tells us to keep on praying and keep on praying. And you know why we don't have power? Because we quit asking for power. We stopped asking for power when we need his power. We can't make it without him. Virtue has to come out of him to us for us to have power. We quit asking for power. We quit asking God when we have problems, we look for everybody else to fix our problem but God. We call everybody else, the lawyers, the, the commissioners. We'll call, we'll call the politicians. We'll call the doctors. We'll call the health workers. We'll call the mental health. We'll call everybody except the one who can do it, and that's God. I can remember... A few years ago, um, I was still pastoring then, and it was like there hadn't been much power, much movement, much, which we weren't used to that in our church. It was a, we were used to people getting saved every Sunday. We I baptized just about every Sunday. It was God was always doing something, and it'd been just a little bit of dry spell, and, and, and I got burdened. I couldn't sleep on Saturday night, ten o'clock at night. I went to the church all by myself. And, I got down. I said, God, I can't stand it like this. I can't stand it like this. Lord, I don't know what I need to do or how, what, I need, what I've let happen or what's going on in our church or what I need to say. I'll say whatever you want me to say. I'll do whatever you want me to do. But God, we want your power back in this place. We want your power on us. And I want your power on me. 
like Elijah prayed on Mount Carmel and the people fell on their face and they said, Lord, he is God. Lord, he is God. Like Joshua prayed when they were in trouble for the sun to stop and it did. Like Hezekiah when 500,000 Assyrians were gathered around him and he didn't know what to do and he took a letter to where they threatened to kill him and he, was, he raised it before God said, God, we can't do this without you. He gets up the next morning all 500,000 are dead. So I felt that way that night. I felt like Jacob did that night when Jacob wrestled with the angel of God, which is the Lord Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ. And Jacob wrestled and wrestled and wrestled. And he said, let me go. He said, I will not let you go till you bless me. That's this woman. I won't won't stop. I'll give my last breath to touch Jesus. That's where she was. Desperate. So I'm asking you tonight if we have that kind of desperation in our heart, in our church, in our life. Are we desperate enough to get to know God? Do we really care enough? Or are we so interested in trying it our way and everybody else's way and the denomination's way and, and, and the religious world's way and the contemporary way? Are we willing to do everything their way or are we willing to get back on our faces and say, God, we are not going on without you. You bless us now. We have to have your power. That's where she was. But look at the trust and cure, and I'll quit. Verse 44. This is my last night, so y'all can't got to come back tomorrow night, so you can walk out of here mad if you want to, and I'll be on my way home, okay? Rod's driving, so we're safe, okay? I'll preach myself asleep, and he'll drive us home, all right? But in verse 44, immediately the issue of blood stopped. Wasn't the process. Didn't take a while. Didn't take three weeks, three days, three minutes. Immediately. So how long does it get how long does it take to get saved? Immediately. You can be saved. Isn't it amazing? It takes nine months to bring a baby in the world. God can birth one in his family in nine seconds. Immediately. She's cured. She had such great confidence in Jesus. She believed that he could do in an instant what all the doctors had not done in twelve years. She'd come to that place in her life. She came behind him, so not to call attention to herself. And you can just see her just crawling up behind him. And and she couldn't even get high enough to touch his robe. She touched the tassels on his robe. She touched the hem, which meant the tassels that hung down, which represented the commandments of God, like rabbis wore, called a talith, and you put it around you, and it was the outer covering, covering that rabbis wore, or teachers wore, or many other people wore, and they would have that on them. It had knots on it, it had tassels on it, and somehow she reached up just high enough. I have one those, several of those taliths myself, and she reached up and grabbed a hold to this old well-worn talith and touched just the tassel. With every ounce of energy she had left. And immediately. She was healed. She stopped bleeding immediately. Her strength returned immediately. Her emotions were stabilized immediately. She was well. And don't you know she knew she was well. <laughs> you say well how could she. A woman would know. A woman would know after 12 years that she was healed. She knew. 
12 years. And in one second, she knew she'd been healed. You can find it in Mark 5, 29, Mark 5, 33. Both of them says she knew. She knew in herself that she'd been healed. Folks, when somebody tells me, well, I don't know why I'm saved or not. Listen, if you've ever been saved, I realize there can be moments of doubt hit your mind. But that doesn't come from God, by the way, because He's a convincer, not a confuser. All right? If you're doubting, that comes from devil, not God. God never causes us to doubt. He causes us to believe. So I realize that sometimes we'll allow ourselves to doubt. Whatsoever is not a faith is sin. When we doubt God, we're we're doubting God. It's called unbelief. It's sin. But that happens in all of our lives. Sometimes we'll have those moments to where we doubt, doubt God. But I'm going to tell you, you cannot come to know Jesus as your Savior with one ounce of doubt that He can't save you. You've got to believe it with all your heart. Now, let me give you four new things and I'll quit. Look, there was a contact for the cure. There was a touch. It had to be a faith contact. The way you contact God is by faith. It's the only way you can touch Him. By faith. By faith. Then there's the confidence for the cure. She made the effort. She was so confident he could do it. She made the effort to cry out unto God, to exercise her faith by reaching toward him. That's not a work. That's an extension of helplessness to God, saying if you don't save me, if you don't fix me, I can't be fixed. And then she believed in the completeness of the cure. If you notice, the Bible said she was made whole. Not well, but whole. So what does that mean? Used in the Bible, when the Bible says the word whole, 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says that when He saves us, He, he saves us body, soul, and spirit. It uses the word W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy. In other words, He didn't just heal her, He saved her that day. He saved her. So she not only went away with a new physical life, and a new social life, she went away with a brand new spiritual life. And then there's the cognizance of the cure. She knew it. When you're born again, you'll know it. The God of glory cannot step out of heaven and step into your life without you not knowing it. Just can't happen. Just can't happen. You'll know it. You'll know it. You may have your moments of doubt later. But you'll never doubt that moment, that experience you had with Christ. He moved into your life. Sometimes you need a second touch, but he touched me. Now I'm going to show you something else and I'm done. A touch must be confessed. It cannot be clandestine. You okay? Y'all still with me? Three of you are. Okay, where's the rest of you at? Okay. Y'all done moved out the back door? If you touch Jesus Christ, it must be a confessed touch, not a clandestine touch. You don't secretly follow Jesus. You don't privately follow Jesus. You publicly follow Jesus. You see, it's too good to go unnoticed. It's too good to let it go by because God's the one who gets the glory out of this thing, not you. Everybody knows you made a mess of things. Everybody knows that she was sick. She couldn't do one blessed thing. She was down to it all. She was rejected and outcast and lonely. And now God immediately healed her. Can you imagine some of them old boys looked at her and said, she didn't look so good before. Man, she ain't too bad looking right now. They got a good eye on this. They knew something had happened in her life. And listen to me. 
Jesus said, Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33, if you'll confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. So if you're ashamed of him, he'll be ashamed of you. So he had to stop and ask her, who touched me? And when she realized that he knew, she stepped forward and said, I did it. It was me. That's what God expects out of you tonight. If there's somebody here and you're lost, if you died, you'd go to hell. And you know it. You've never been saved. Oh, you may have joined the church. You may have got baptized. You may have went through the motions. You may have had catechism. You may have done all those kinds of things. You may do some good works. You may think you're about as good as anybody else. But if you never have really and truly been born again to where you've come and you've emptied yourself of everything and by faith trusted him to fill you with who he is and you don't know him and your sins have not been washed and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ who died on Calvary for you because he loved you. It's the only way to be saved. There's not two ways, three ways, or four ways. There's just one way to be saved. When you take the one way to be saved, you're going to heaven. If you reject the one way to go to heaven, there's the only way to go to hell. I don't care whichever way you choose, it's the way to hell when you reject the one way to heaven. And it's only through Jesus Christ. And until you're willing to confess that publicly, there is no secret believers. He, remember in Romans 10, when we give the Roman road, we sometimes leave out Romans 10, 12. says, whosoever believeth on me shall not be ashamed. We forget that. So a crowd here saw Jesus do a perform. And this woman, when she saw that it was known, she couldn't hide it. He was looking right at her. She was looking right at him. Now that one who had been isolated, embarrassed, humiliated, and everybody looked down on someone that she would have, would have been scared for anybody to even know that she was there. When she met Jesus, she didn't care who it was. It was me. I touched Jesus. I hear people say, well, I would get saved, but I don't want to go down there in front of all those people. Well, first of all, it's not, not, not that many people, okay? Not that big a deal. All these people you know, you love them. And they won't be, they won't be sitting there judging you. They'll be sitting there rejoicing with you. But if you're ashamed, to reach out to Jesus, then how in the world do you expect Him to reach out to you? If you're ashamed, say, God, I believe you enough that I'm willing to come your way. When you do that, you'll find out He's already there. See, just because you're out of reach, out of touch, don't mean you're out of reach. The moment you believe, you'll find out there's His hand to take you. So tonight, our old way of life ought to be an embarrassment. Not our new way of life. I'm ashamed of what I was for 24 years. I'm ashamed of that. Sometimes I laugh about some of the stupid stuff I did and how the ignorant way I lived. But I'm telling you, I'm ashamed of what I did and the consequences that came from what I did for 24 years. But I've never, ever been ashamed of what Jesus Christ has done for me on Calvary's cross and changed a life that was headed to hell. I've never been ashamed of that. He changed me and saved me. So, you'd like to be called Jesus' daughter, Jesus' son, you could do it tonight. But just because the church calls you brother or sister does not mean God does. So make sure that you have that relationship with him to where when God says, you're my son, you're my daughter, it's a relationship in the family. You're one of his. You're one of his. Oh, we're all God's children. No, we're not. Jesus said, you are your, of your father, the devil, and the works of the father you shall do. You're either the father of, God's either your father, or the devil's your father. God's our creator, but he's not our father unless we know him as our savior.
So I pray tonight that if you don't know Jesus, you'll come and you'll trust him with all of your heart. And you'll say, I'm not leaving here till I touch him. I'm not leaving here till I touch him. I'm not going home tonight and let Jesus pass by. He may never pass this way again. He's passed by tonight. There's some Christians tonight. You need a second touch. You've let some things get back in the way and push you away from God, isolate, separate you from the fellowship of God. And tonight you need to come and lay it all at his feet and say, God, I need a second touch tonight. And he'll fill you with himself. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes tonight. I, I don't, my voice is kind of not great tonight, but there's an old song. And I can't sing like I used to sing, but if you just listen to this for our invitation tonight, then our brother will come and lead us. There's an old song in the old book. Let me touch you. Let me touch Jesus. Let me touch him as he passes by. Then when I shall reach out to others, they shall know him, they shall live and not die. Oh, to be his hand extended, reaching out to the oppressed. Let me touch him, let me touch Jesus, so that others may know and be blessed. As our musicians and our song leader comes to lead us in a hymn of invitation, Brother Paul will be ready to help you any way you can. I pray tonight you'll think about those words and say, I want to touch Jesus because his hand's already reached out to me. He's waiting to touch me. He wants to stop in those tracks tonight and change you and touch you and fix you. And whatever your emotional instability, whatever the troubles, whatever your issues, whatever problems have been there for years, maybe you've gone through some things that nobody can even understand, but Jesus does. He cares so much about you. He'll stop tonight. He'll stop tonight and meet you where you are and help you with whatever's going on in your life. He'll meet that need for you. He'll touch you, and you'll never be the same. Father, speak now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. You sing. Brother Paul's here. I'll be here. Others here will help you. You just come on. Give your heart to Jesus. Whatever has happened in your life to frustrate you, to confuse you. Maybe you think it, nothing's ever going to change. Nothing's going to happen. And tonight you'll just get serious enough to God to reach out and touch him tonight. And you'll find out he stops dead still tonight right here in Bethlehem Church so you can come to Jesus tonight. So let's sing and you come.